Club members to this episode of Fat Girl Book Club. For this episode, we read the book Gendered Bodies and Public Scrutiny by Victoria Cannon. This is the second episode about that book, uh, but this episode I am talking to Layla Cameron. So if you didn't catch the last episode, it's not a must-do, but it's a good idea to go back and listen to that one first because the last episode I did was with the author, and it gives you a really good framework for some of the things we're going to talk about in this episode. So I would recommend listening to that one first. Like I said, you don't have to. Uh, I feel like there's enough context that you would be a-okay to be able to listen to this one uh, in real time without having listened to that one first and, and be perfectly all right to understand what's going on in the conversation. It just it, it adds a little bit of depth to what it is that we're talking about. Okay, I do want to say a couple of things about this podcast before I jump into a couple of things about this episode. (laughs) Uh, So first and foremost, a couple of episodes ago, I told you that I was going to be taking a very long hiatus with this podcast. My hope is to come back at some point. I feel like we have entered an age where there is a lot of books around body acceptance and body liberation and starting to get more around fat acceptance. And I think that it's worth it to honor the fact that we've got so many of them and to look critically at a lot of them. And so I think that this podcast has a space, it has a place. And, and I think that there's enough of you listening that have been hopefully enjoying what's been said on here and the way that uh, we approach these works that it, it really does need it really does need to continue unfortunately for me I have so many things actually maybe that's not true I have a lot of things that I had up in the air when I first moved out here so when COVID started things changed in my life my second puppy dog had passed away so I had I have two and and she was the the second one that I had out of the two and she passed away so I've, I've still got my little Yoda who you sometimes see on my Instagram uh, but bonus passed away and that was really really hard on me and I had ended a relationship uh, that had been you know we'd been together for about eight years and it was it was pretty turbulent relationship and so Uh, I felt like I needed to make a change. So I left the city I was living in and I moved back to my hometown and I moved in with my parents. I'm an extremely independent person and I had hoped to be able to make a living kind of piecemealing together a couple of things I was doing, including uh, some of the body image coaching that I was doing. Uh, I hope to be able to, uh, you know, maybe find some part-time work doing something. Uh, and I hoped it would be enough, but it, it really, it really just wasn't as much as I tried. And I really, really tried it. It wasn't. And so what ended up happening, was that it just kept putting more and more balls in the air, hoping that something would pan out for me financially. And it didn't. And that's really sad because a lot of the things I was doing, I had a very big passion for, but it just, it, in the end, it didn't seem to matter. And so, uh, I am at a point where I have been living with my parents at over 40 years old for more than two years 
or coming up on two years, I guess September will be two years. And I'm just, I'm burnt out. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. And uh, the only way to regain my own sense of independence and my sense of self is to be able to find a way to stand on my own two feet. And unfortunately, just due to time constraints and things that are going on, the only way for me to do that is to get full-time work. And the only way I can do that, because I'm over 40 years old and I feel like I don't have that much energy left in me to keep everything up, is to let everything go, let all the balls drop, all of them, and go into the full-time work uh, and then maybe slowly add some things back. So at this point, I have let go of my online clients that I had that I was doing marketing for. Uh, I have let go of uh, pretty, the, the Patreon page will be shut down uh, once the, ep- the final episode here airs, which will be number 80. And, uh, and then the, the podcast will be going on a very, very long hiatus. Now, the thing I am going to kind of a little bit try to keep going is uh, the brand new thing that I had just started, which was Fearless Podcasting to help people start their own podcast because I think podcasting as a medium is amazing. I love doing this. I have so much passion for doing this and I, I'm not half bad at it. Like I feel like I'm pretty good at it just because I have so much passion in it and I'm not a, I'm not a tech person. That's not where I like to focus when I talk to people about podcasts. I like to talk about story. I like to talk about uh, doing something a little different in order to make yourself stand out. I like to talk about niching and, uh, you know, making your podcast unique and different. And I think because I do that, it is a different voice within how to start a podcast spaces. So, Uh, If you have any interest in starting up your own podcast, especially while this one is on hiatus, please don't hesitate. I've got a link below to the website that tells you a little bit more about what I am still kind of working on slowly. In the meantime, like I said, uh, this podcast will be going on hiatus and hopefully it will come back. Uh, Hopefully I will be able to bring this back into my world uh, probably in the new year. It'll probably look different. you know, I had kind of been resistant to this idea of seasons, but that might be the better way to go. So I've got some thinking to do and I will, I will do that, uh, and, um, let you guys know. So if you are subscribed to this podcast, uh, it would be wonderful if you didn't unsubscribe. I would appreciate that very much. I, if you do, I, I'm sorry to see you go, but I totally understand. Uh, but if you do stay subscribed, stay tuned, uh, because at some point, hopefully there will be some new episodes for you to listen to probably in the new year. Okay. So before I go any further, I want to say a very, very special shout out to all my Patreon supporters. Thank you to Pascal, to Amy, to Ace, to Larissa, and to Jen. You guys have really helped me to get through this extremely turbulent time in my life. I appreciate you guys so much. Uh, Thank you for being there and for supporting me. Uh, Now I want to tell you a little bit about this episode because this episode is... Layla Cameron is my guest on this episode. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Layla in a minute just in case you haven't heard of her name. But 
She is super smart and she articulates herself so well. Like I was blown away in this episode by, because she got kind of a list of the questions, but we went pretty off book in this, in this discussion. So, uh, I am just so impressed by her ability to formulate a thought and get it out in such a coherent manner. And I, she's brilliant. And I think that you will find that as we, as we enter into this conversation. Uh, I want to mention just one, uh, two things. First, a trigger warning. We do talk about disordered exercise closer to the end of this episode. So if you think it, that, that might be harmful right now, please, please embark on some self-care and not listen to this episode at the moment. Uh, and I want to let you just kind of give you a rundown in case you are an American listener or from somewhere overseas. I'm in Canada. Layla's in Canada. The book that we were reading is actually uh, the author's Canadian and there's lots of Canadian content. So we talk a little bit about some of our Canadian cities. So Vancouver is on the West Coast. If you're in the U.S., it's a few hours north of Seattle. Uh, and it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. It's one of the few places in Canada where they don't get snow. And uh, it's on the coast. And it's kind of a, I want to say kind of a more of a hippie feel, but that's maybe not accurate. It's It's more like, I don't know. I don't know. We pretend to be so cool and hip and in it, but there's a pretty conservative streak that runs through Vancouver, in my opinion. So uh, Layla's in Vancouver right now. I'm in Vancouver, out, just outside of Vancouver now. Uh, we also discussed Calgary a little bit because that's where I spent about 12 years of 12, 13 years of my life, uh, which is a very conservative city uh, above Montana. And, uh, you know, it's called the Houston of the North. Uh, it's a big oil, very much tied to oil kind of city. Uh, and it has, it's Vancouver's kind of, um, restricted in terms of what it can look like because it's got the mountains on one side and the ocean on the other, whereas Calgary doesn't have that. So there's this big urban sprawl that happens with Calgary because it's in the middle of our prairie provinces. And then we talk about Toronto, which is a, the metropolis of Canada. I would say it's, it's, it's the, the biggest Canadian city that we have. And it is, um, I, I'm not even sure. The Great Lakes, there's a good there's a good uh, kind of reference point if you are in the U.S. It's kind of in that kind of an area. And it's huge. It's a massively big, big city. Um, in Vancouver, we don't have highways that are more than about three lanes. Uh, in Calgary, I think we had a couple of highways that were four lanes. In Toronto, it's just, they're all over the place. They have big, big highways. So <laughs> for me, that's a big reference point. What can I say? So I wanted to kind of give you that rundown just in case you are uh, listening from somewhere else and are not really quite sure what we're talking about when we get to that part of the conversation. Uh, And yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to, the background I wanted to give you. So let me tell you about the book. Like I said, this is the same book that I had on the podcast in the last episode, but I'm going to read you the blurb that is on the back of the book here. What does it mean to exist in a body that is constantly on display and subject to public scrutiny? A body that inspires stares, questions, and comments. In a unique approach to the field of body studies, gendered bodies and public scrutiny explores these questions through artistic expression and personal narratives of self-identified odd and odd women. 
With intertwining perspectives on embodiment, identity, resistance, and power, this book examines the interplay of the myriad of ways our bodies express identity. Through gender, race, size, sexuality, disability, body modification, and age, and explores how public scrutiny of these expressions can have a lasting impact on our public and private selves. Featuring critical questions for discussion and reflection, a glossary of key terms, and an appendix of activities to encourage the reader to critically engage in their own personal body study, Gendered Bodies and Public Scrutiny is essential reading for students and scholars of women's and gendered studies, sociology, and anyone interested in the power of storytelling. I do highly recommend the book. It was really, really, really a good read. Uh, let me tell you about Layla. So Layla Cameron is completing her PhD in a few weeks at Simon Fraser University in the School of Communication. Layla's research interests reside in queer feminist cultural studies, particularly topics related to reality television and new information technologies. Layla is also a filmmaker, journalist, and community organizer whose work revolves around fat liberation. Layla is currently working on a second documentary film titled Baby Weight, as well as their first podcast project supported by Telus Story Hive, which features interviews with people who live in the Lower Mainland. I really hope that you enjoy this discussion with Layla Cameron. I know I certainly did. Hi, Layla. Welcome to Fat Girl Book Club. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are going to be talking about a book that probably most of my listeners may not have heard of. It's a Canadian written by a Canadian author, and it does talk a lot about the Canadian experience, and it's called Gendered Bodies and Public Scrutiny. Uh, but before we get to that, can you talk a little bit about your journey to becoming a fat activist? Because that's how, that's the label you put on it, right? Is fat activist? Yeah, I think I would identify as fat. Well, I definitely identify as fat and I align myself and my work with movements for fat liberation. So that's a, that's a term or an identity that I embrace. I think like most people, I didn't start off there. Obviously I grew up fat and I was subjected to a lot of bullying and harassment in my childhood and adolescence. So I think that is sort of also a key component of the fat experience uh, for many of us, at least who have always been fat. As a teenager, I became a little more politically minded and I started to question the ways that I was being treated. So I dabbled in plus size modeling very briefly and kind of explored what a more like body positive approach to my life would look like for me. But it wasn't really until I finished my master's and I moved to Vancouver in 2014 that I discovered fat activism as we would kind of identify it and talk about it. When I moved to Vancouver, I very quickly realized that there was nowhere in the city where I could buy clothes in my size. And I found that I was usually the only fat person out on the trails when I was hiking or in yoga classes or on the beach or the seawall or whatever. But I knew I couldn't be the only fat person in the city. Just statistically, <laughs> I like knew that wasn't possible. So I started looking for other fat folks who had similar interests to me. And I discovered an Instagram page called Fat Girls Hiking. And I had always wanted to make a documentary. I had studied documentary filmmaking while I lived in Toronto, and I was kind of waiting for a good story to come along. And when I connected with Summer, who co-founded Fat Girls Hiking, I started thinking that that would be a good first topic to explore in documentary 
documentary filmmaking. And working on that project really forced me to deep dive into fat liberation and fat activist communities. I started reading more books from fat studies, which was still a very uh, sort of emerging academic discipline. And that kind of spiraled and shaped my life now. I'm completing a PhD in the field of fat studies. I've made numerous uh, different projects and types of media about fat activism. So I kind of like jumped with both feet once I discovered it. Right, right, right. And I know I've been on your website, so I know that there's a huge list of all the things that you've worked on. So we're definitely putting a link to that in the show notes for the listeners. Uh, do you feel like things have changed at all in Vancouver uh, since the time you've been there in terms of you know, perceptions about being fat and moving around the city? I think that in general, perceptions of fatness have started to be troubled or shift slightly. And I think that within Vancouver, at least my experience is that fat community really has developed and there's lots of different fat communities now in the city. But I think overall as a city um, or as a province, it still is very much invested in fat stigma and healthism and all of these other sort of problematic attitudes. I mean, we still can't go shopping in the city. I think there's a torrid in Surrey now. Old Navy is closing their extended sizing in store. So it just, I mean, my like structurally and institutionally, not at all, but on the ground and it's sort of in these alternative public spaces or these like counter publics, I think it's shifted. I think it's shifted in the right direction. Yeah, I've always found with Vancouver, it's never like a, we hate fat people. It's more like a, we're on board with health kind of attitude, um, which translates to, we don't like fat people, but they (laughs) say that, right? It's a very Canadian attitude about, you know, being passive aggressive about the whole thing, um, which I never found, like you and I were talking, uh, I lived in Calgary, which I never really found the same, quite the same attitude in Calgary, that doesn't mean it wasn't there. I just didn't didn't feel that way. And you said you grew up in Toronto, right? What was the attitude there like in terms of what people thought about fat people? You know, I don't think Toronto was different in terms of its attitudes, but I think that Toronto is just a more diverse city. So even if these oppressive attitudes and ideologies still persist you are still nonetheless exposed to diverse bodies. And and I mean that in a range of ways. I do think though that in Toronto, it was easier to find clothing. I think it was easier to fit into public spaces somewhat. And I think that in Vancouver, there is just so much more coded language for fat stigma. Whereas in Toronto, they'll just like tell you to your face that they hate you. But in Vancouver, they will code it as, well, I'm just worried about your health, which is the same thing. You know, it's the same thing. So uh, it's yes, but no. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's exactly right. It's more code because even in Calgary, in terms of clothing, I found there was a lot more options there. There's two tourists there. Um, which was great. Uh, and then they had a bunch of old navies and a bunch of other things, which like you said, I moved out here. I'm in Chilliwack, which was about, is about two hours outside of Vancouver. Uh, and the other day I wanted to go shopping and the only place I can really go is to head down to Surrey, which is, is a bit of a trek, you know, to try to get down there. And, 
And I know that when I go there, I spend way more than I, than I want to, because I know I'm not going to get there again, oh, you know, totally. especially totally. with gas, I'm just not going to go probably for another year. And that's sad. Like, you know, like when you're in a thinner body, it's a much easier to just say, okay, well, I'm going to pop on over to the local mall here and just take a look around and everything will fit. And I just have to decide whether or not it looks good on me, you know? Totally. And Torrid is really expensive and it also has a very narrow aesthetic in terms of its offering. So if you think about it, if that is the only option for fat folks to find clothing, it also means that that is the only option available to us in terms of how we present ourselves to the world, in terms of our, you know, aesthetic and our style. And it's really troubling to think about, first of all, how narrow that is and how oppressive that is, but also that, you know, we tend to pay these like fat taxes, even like you said, the cost of gas, that is an additional price that we have to pay in order to clothe ourselves that other people do not have to pay or consider. And I think as well, I appreciate that you said, you know, that uh, we have the scarcity mindset. We don't know when we're going to be back here. We don't know when we're going to have access to these things. So we have to, you know, grab as much as we can. And I think that's really true. I think that's really true in general, that when we are offered even just a tiny sliver of something, we really have to hold on to it because it doesn't come around that often. And for Vancouver being such a big city too, right? Like, like I was saying, Calgary is not that big. It's a city. It's a, it's a fairly big, I guess, Canadian city, but it's not as big as Vancouver. There should be more options in Vancouver and there isn't. And that's just really, really, really sad. Totally. But it's the same reason why stores like, I don't know, H&M or what have you won't have their plus size options in store. It's why Lululemon won't expand their sizes past a 20 or whatever. It's because it doesn't meet their brand. You know, having fat people wear their clothing doesn't meet their brand. And I think for Vancouver, acknowledging that fat people live in the city doesn't match their brand. And so if we made it easier or more comfortable for fat people to live here, then it destabilizes everything that the city would hold to be true about itself. That's true. That is so true. And lots of brands make that conscious choice. It's surprising to me how many of them will actually be maybe not vocal in terms of, you know, putting it out there on a, you know, a a PR offering to go to newspapers or anything, but they will be vocal about the fact that they have a specific type of person that they're looking at to wear their clothing. Uh, I used to work for a motorcycle parts and apparel company Uh, that was a uh, distribution company. And so they worked with a number of different brands and there was a a fairly famous, uh, well-known, if you're in the motorcycle circles, uh, apparel company that pretty much came out because somebody within the company I worked for said, you know, your clothes don't really fit anyone if, if you're in a plus size body, like at all, like even the largest size wouldn't really even match in a straight size in the stores and they said we don't want fat people wearing our clothes like that was literally what they came out and said and I was like what like what the fuck (laughs) that's terrible yeah Um, because fat people exist and there's a lot of us and uh we have uh, clearly a lot of us have paid the fat tax for a very long time on clothing uh so we are a market and it just feels so degrading Absolutely. And like you said, it's a choice. If you can make sizes from an extra small to an extra large, you can make sizes up to a six X or beyond. It's a choice to not offer that. 
And, and I think that's the most hurtful part. You know, that's what contributes to feelings of fat shame is that, you know, it's not about that it's impossible or that you're asking for something that's unrealistic. It's a choice to deny us those options. I, you know what, there was something in the book that was like, they were talking about how, yeah, they were talking about uh, being in a body and uh, having somebody point something out that made them feel very exposed. I can't remember whose story this was in, but they, they were saying that they felt very exposed and isolated. And that when, when that happened, when they, something was pointed out, it's in a public space, they're feeling exposed they begin to see like they're not their own body. Like they're just mm-hmm. their public assumption. Um, and, and that made them feel kind of like ashamed, ashamed of themselves because they're looking at the people around them and realizing that the people around them either like feel sorry for them. And like that, that really hit me actually, because mm-hmm. I, that's told, I have been in spaces where I felt that way too, where something's come out and I felt, like a freak almost mm-hmm. because they're pointing something out. And then that makes me feel ashamed to be me, even though I really have nothing to be ashamed of. Totally. Susie Orbach writes in her book, I think it's called bodies that it's this concept of the third eye. So for people who occupy non-normative bodies, so let's, say, let's use fat people as an example, you learn to view yourself, not from your own perspective, or even the perspective of people, you know, but of the public, it's sort of this like surveillant eye, so to speak. So even when you are in moments of intimacy, for example, uh, you will view yourself from this third eye perspective. And it's a really lonely way to live your life. And it's a very sort of this negative perspective or framework that is so bound up in shame and humiliation and guilt. And it, it robs you of the opportunity of being present, right? This idea of fatness as being this like liminal characteristic that is not an inherent part of who we are, but it's something that we must live with and we must work through in order to gain value, in order to eventually become our true selves. And to be honest, that's that was the one issue I had with this book was that the illustrations, none of them were fat. And this book wasn't explicitly concerned with fatness, but it was explicitly concerned with operating from an intersectional framework. And I think this goes to show how insidious fat stigma and fat shame is, right? Because we can acknowledge from an intersectional perspective that things such as race and class and disability are integral to our lived experiences and they are valued positionalities. They are valuable positionalities. And I think that there were so many times in this book where I wrote and fatness in the margins because it would have been so easy to include it. And I think it was very interesting that the drawings were done by an artist who was never shown a picture of the subject of the participant. And yet still when conceptualizing a visual of this person's authentic self, it never involved a fat body or even a chubby body. And I think that goes to show that when we view, like, especially for fat people, we are positioned in ways that we are not sort of granted a present or a future, you know, like we approach ourselves from this very critical outside perspective that 
to be honest, it's not completely a farcity either. Like it's a fact that many people will look at you in that way. And I think that a key part of the fat lived experience is public shame and humiliation. That when you walk out into public or in a public space, or when you insert yourself in any kind of interaction, you are opening yourself up to the very real possibility of some form of humiliation or embarrassment. And I feel like the, like I'm a small fat, I'm in a small fat body. So my experience, yes, when I walk outside of the house, there is that ability for something to happen to me. And I, and I am prepared for it. Maybe because I'm in these spaces, I am prepared for it. But I know that my experience is not the same as someone in a mid-sized fat body or an infinite fat body. Their experience would be drastically different to what I experience being out in the world. Some people look at me like I am a freak and other people don't even give me a second glance, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas I think someone, especially if you're in an InfiniFat body, um, I think TLC has made sure that someone who's that kind of a size of a body is looked upon as someone who needs help and and take care of themselves. And like, there's a whole bunch of connotations that come along with that size of body that I don't have to deal with in the same way or in the same proportions or the same amount, you know? Totally. I think it all rests on health is discourse, right? Like as small fats and mid fats, we have the possibility of still having a viable body. And yet there is this sort of invisible boundary as you move farther along the fat spectrum into large fats, infinity fats, even what Leslie Kinsall calls death fats, where you move into this space that your body is scrutinized as potentially not even being viable or conducive to life. And that is a whole other sort of ball game or arena when it comes to fat shame, because I think that the very few tools that we are given as fat people to negotiate or hide our fatness are not even available to those at the larger end of the fat spectrum. You literally do not have a choice when you walk out your door in terms of how you are going to be coded or perceived. So I appreciate that you pointed out that distinction because yes, of course we can use fat as an umbrella term, but within that community, there are very significant differences between us that greatly influence our experience of fat stigma. I also wanna bring like your discussion around the illustrations was interesting to me because, so I've read this book now, this will be like the third or fourth time I read it. And I was noticing as well. So just for the listeners, the book has illustrations in it. The, the person who did the illustrations was allowed to read the transcripts of the interviews that Victoria did with the people that she was talking to them about their body stories, uh, but no access to any kind of pictures or video. And they did a drawing and, and actually pretty cool. Like I liked most of the drawings. I thought they were really great, but there was a woman in here who identified as curvy. And then talked about how, like, especially around what she felt about her, her breasts, because they were extremely large. And when he was, when the illustrator was talking about the illustration that they had done, they really focused in on the fact that this woman had mentioned that she had really large breasts. And he was like, I wasn't quite sure what to do with that. He was like, I know some illustrators like big breasts. I don't really know how to handle that. And one thing I noticed was that her picture was the only picture that didn't depict somebody in a very empowered state uh, that was like very kind of 
um, bigger than life or, uh, you know, like felt very powerful. Her picture was the one picture where he took the story that this woman had said where she was like hiding in a car away from a bunch of guys who were, or one guy who was trying to connect with her, I guess, that she didn't, she didn't learn. She didn't enjoy the experience and told him she wasn't enjoying the experience and had to run and hide in this hot car. And that was what he chose to depict. And I thought that that was an interesting choice when the rest of them show these women burning books and, you know, standing on top of buildings and, and here she is hiding. And it was the only picture I think where the entire body wasn't shown. She's only depicted from the waist up. I mean, even in the story of the person who uh, shaves their head and is bald, they are depicted literally riding the electric razor. And for this person to be depicted, not only in within the confines of this negative framing. So there isn't even an opportunity to reclaim the car as a, cause I think for a lot of fat people sitting in the car is your safe space. It's your heaven. Right. And so to not even offer the opportunity to reclaim that space, but then to also not depict the rest of the body, it almost like airs on the side of, you know, headless fatty depictions in news media, or this idea that fat people are not entire human beings, but we are just like body parts. So as much as I enjoyed the book, I did have points of contention where I was like, what about fatness? It is such an embodied, literally such a material embodied characteristic. And, you know, uh, the book uh, also frames many of these subjects using theories, theoretical frameworks like biopower and discipline. How can you talk about surveillance and discipline and biopower without talking about body size explicitly? You know, it, it really felt like, you know, shouting into the void a little bit while reading it being like, and fatness and fatness every time, you know, we go through the sort of list of identities when we refer to intersectionality. So, uh, yeah, it was an interesting. (laughs) And I I felt the same way. I had a bunch of notes in the side going, couldn't we put this into a fatness framework? Could we put this into a fatness framework? So yeah, there was definitely lots in there, but if you're will, if you're able and Uh, if you've been in this space long enough, you are going to read this book, putting everything into that lens. And I think um, being able to do that does allow for us to to pull some really good stuff from it. So yeah, unfortunately, I agree with you that it wasn't wasn't there, but I think that um, we can hopefully uh, be able to pull some things out that I think were valuable. Totally. No, I really enjoyed the book. And I think it also did a very good job of providing an introduction to these very key concepts and discussions about the body and embodiment so much so that I'll likely use it in my classes. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, I think it also just goes to show how new fatness is to these conversations, even within feminist spaces, even within gender studies literature, you know, it, it not, and you know, okay, there's this sentiment within fat communities that some folks feel fat stigma is the quote unquote last form of socially acceptable discrimination. And I really reject that approach. And I just want to make sure that it's clear that that's not what I'm suggesting, because I do think that that idea or that theory really negates the ongoing existence and persistence of things like racism and classism and ableism that are still very much, you know, in place 
today. I, it to suggest that fat stigma is the worst kind of ignores or erases the point of intersectionality, which is that this isn't the oppression Olympics, but instead, you know, different marginalized identities interlock in various ways that are critical to these conversations. So I just want to point out that that's not to say that it was missing the most important part of these conversations. It was just missing one component of these conversations. And I think that's an important distinction to make because I think I, I do hear that quite a bit in uh, body liberation spaces saying that it's the last socially acceptable form of discrimination. And, and you're right, it doesn't, you know, we can't negate the fact that all of these other discriminations are still happening and happening um, quite majestically. And they're related, you know, like uh, fat stigma wouldn't exist without racism. It wouldn't exist without classism. So if we know that, then we can't really say that this is, you know, the, the top of the hierarchy of things we need to address. Right. Exactly. No, absolutely. Absolutely. She sets us up at the beginning with this idea of body stories. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious to know when you read that, what things came to mind for your own body story what you think a body story entails. And then I kind of wanted to get into this idea of identity and how that might be different than a body story. That was a lot of questions, sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I think that if we define identity as our positionalities that inform our lived experiences, then there isn't really a difference between a body story and identity because they inform each other. Yes. But sometimes I think that certain identities can start to sway away from our lived experiences. So for example, I identify as a fat activist, but sometimes I don't always want to put that hat on. So sometimes I don't want to fight a doctor when they say something shitty about my body. Sometimes I want to watch problematic reality TV and not interrogate it. And I think that those experiences still inform my body story. And to be honest, are likely just part of this messy reality of being a fat activist, because it's a very imperfect thing to be. But I do think that if there were to be any tensions between those two things, that perhaps that's where it would lie in maybe like our actions versus our feelings. But I think it's a really sort of sticky thing to try to differentiate between the two. Okay, so do you think that there is, like if somebody looks at me and sees somebody who's uh, healthy, let's say, um, like, like I'm mentally, I'm healthy. When in reality, I'm suffering from depression. That's part of my own identity. Do you think that there's any differentiation uh, between your body story and your identity in terms of like how you're processing that? The fact that you look like you're healthy, like you look like everything's fine on the outside and then the inside you're suffering from depression? Totally. And I think that is sort of the insidious nature of passing, right? That we might pass as these certain normative identities or categories, and that doesn't match up with our lived experience that greatly informs our embodied reality. Like for example, I am neurodivergent, I have ADHD, and I am also an academic and a university instructor. And when I stand in front of my classrooms and I'm giving a lecture to my students, I often explicitly state that I have ADHD, that my brain works differently than they might expect, because I want to ensure that I am understood in the ways that line up with the way I move and operate and think and feel, but I also want to make it clear to my students that 
just because we make assumptions about certain people, particularly people in positions of leadership or authority, doesn't mean that that is true. And I think it's important that we are vulnerable in those situations and sort of discuss our invisible identities or experiences in order to hopefully one day reach a point where we don't equate someone like a university instructor as someone who is free from mental health concerns or neurodivergence. So yeah, I think, and I think passing as well is coded language for different ideologies, even within fat communities. So there's, you know, lots of talk about good fatties and bad fatties and all these different archetypes of behavior. And I think that there are a lot of things that we negotiate in our body stories, in our, in our relationships to our fat bodies, where sometimes we do things so that we can pass as not necessarily not fat because you can't pluck off your fatness. It's something that will always be there, but it's so you can pass as something that is not, that has not been ascribed to the fat stereotype. So I think, for example, as I'll go back to using my example as a university instructor, I put a lot of effort into what I wear so that I come across as professional, as an intelligent, as an expert in my field, because fat people are, or fat bodies rather, are already ascribed characteristics such as lazy, unintelligent, uh, unprofessional, um, slobs, what have you. And so there are certain behaviors that we take up so that we can resist yes. being coded and read in those ways as well, which I'm not saying that that is right either. I'm just saying and it's it's perhaps the harsh reality of being fat in a fat phobic world. Yeah, the position I'm in right now, uh, I put on a mask every time I go to work to be the friendly and outgoing one, even though I'm extremely introverted. And I think I do that. I think it's it's natural for me to do that around other people, but I go over the top a little bit sometimes. And I think that that is because, and I can feel myself doing it, but I do definitely do it without a lot of conscious thought. I, I do definitely go over the top to be friendly because I don't want to be the fat one. Mm-hmm. I don't want people to say, oh, the fat one in the office, you know? And we're always uh, the funny one. We yeah, have to be funny. The nice one. Or the, like, for me, I'm never funny. I'm, I, I have a hard time being funny. I'm just not, I'm not good at it. And that's okay. <laughs> but I'm not. I, I'm good at being funny, like, after the fact, like, way after the fact. Um, but in the moment, I'm not funny. I'm not the funny one. But I am the nice one. I'm the one with the smile on her face, always willing to go the extra mile for you. And that's part of my personality. But it's definitely a passing mechanism, too. It's a, it's a body management way for me to maneuver so that I have an identity that is not going to be the fat bitch. Like that, that's what I'm trying to get away from, right? Well, so much is out of our control. So we try to control the things that we can. And I think that's why I had a hard, such a hard time in Vancouver was not having access to clothing gave me so little control over how I was going to be perceived. And I remember I was working in a corporate, a corporate job and I was called into HR and told that I needed to dress more professionally. And it was because I had worn jeans to the office. And I remember thinking, that's all fine and great. Sure. I can uphold your very white supremacist, you know, patriarchal ideas of what professionalism looks like. However, please show me where I can go buy business casual pants. 
If you can show me one place in the city where I can go get those, I'll go get them. But until you can do that, I am very restricted in terms of what choices I have available to me and therefore how I present myself to the world. So what was HR's reaction when you said that? It was kind of like, not our problem. You, you need to fix this Um, problem. Like it was very still defensive. Um, And I, and I obviously wasn't as forthright with complaints about it, but I do remember as well being in the sort of like company kitchen at lunchtime. And there was only one other fat person who worked there. They wouldn't have identified as fat, but they would constantly lament about food and, and things like that. And it's at some point I just had to never eat my lunch there because it was like, I can't even engage with this. I have to work here. I have to survive in this environment. It's not my job to fix everything. And I just kind of had to remove myself too, because I just didn't want to be complicit in it. I didn't want to participate, but I also didn't want to be the angry fat person either, or the defensive fat person either. I have to do that so often everywhere else. I was like, not at work. I totally agree. I totally agree. And it's hard because uh, I know this job that I'm in right now, I, you know, we've had discussions. I'm body positive. They all know that, but body positivity, like that's the expression I used when I came on board because it's more palatable. Uh, But unfortunately, what that also means is that they still think they can talk about dieting and they still think they recognize that maybe I'm never going on a diet, but that doesn't mean that they don't still have morality around food and and they think it's okay. They think that this somehow fits into the category of body positivity. And so, yeah, I could see my, I I do get mad. And at the same time, like you said, sometimes you have to just smile and nod to get through the day, because if you don't, um, you're, you are going to be the angry fat, the, the fat bitch. And I don't, I don't want to be that. Totally. (laughs) For them, not just for them, for me too, for my own mental sanity. Right. Totally. And I think you're touching on something really interesting, which is the amount of cognitive dissonance that occurs even in our most precious and positive relationships with our friends and family, where it always surprises me when people have an attitude of, well, I can say this about myself and you don't have to take it personally. It doesn't reflect you. And I'm sitting there saying, but you're literally saying that you do not want to look like me. It is personal. And to say that it's not, and to say that it isn't a reflection of how you feel about me and my body is just incorrect. So if you're going to say it, at least be honest about it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a tough, that is a tough conversation to have. Oh yeah. And most people won't, they won't go there, you know? And I think that's okay. Like, I think it's okay to have a survival strategy where you, unfortunately, I think the reality is, is that it would be a very, very lonely experience if we were very militant in maintaining or insisting on the maintenance of fat positive ideology in every facet of our lives. I don't think it would be possible to have a semblance of a community around you if we had those attitudes or if we insisted on them simply because it just isn't there yet. We can't talk, we can't destabilize this concept. Well, we haven't destabilized the concept of health even. And so, so much of it rests in that. And I just don't, I think it would be a very lonely experience. And no, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect fat people to choose community or support over 
yeah, standing alone in that. And I mean, I guess that's one of the things about this, this book is that she was specifically focusing on, on public spaces. And she talks about a whole whack load of mechanisms that are used in order to uh, really, really kind of shape the way that we are viewed out in public. And there, there was quite a number of them. So I was interested to know which ones you gravitated towards and which ones maybe spoke to you in terms of your own story. Yeah, I mean, as we were saying, I think shame is like one hell of a drug that lot that I have lots of experiences with, especially Victoria's concept of the well-meaning stranger. I, you know, the concept made me a little uncomfortable as I was reading the book, because I think that just because something is well-meaning to someone else, it doesn't mean that it meets my definition of well-meaning. And so this idea that there can be well-meaning strangers in some ways I, I kind of want to trouble that idea a little bit. Like, for example, comments about health that are always thrown at fat people. And to me, that isn't a well-meaning thing to say, because I think that the bottom line of those well-meaning comments is the attitude that being fat is bad. And we, it's something that we should avoid at all costs. It's sort of similar to that story in the book where the well-meaning stranger wanted to offer suggestions as to quote unquote, cure someone's baldness. And the underlying assumption is that being bald is bad or that no one would ever choose to be bald. So like, what if people choose to be fat? To me, that is a valid choice. And I, so I, I kind of wanted to trouble that concept as well. Victoria does talk about feeling tokenized or fetishized. And I think that these things can sort of be a double-edged sword too, where those of us in abject bodies can experience both pleasure and pain from these things. Mm -hmm. So there is something to be said about experiencing pleasure as the site of someone's fetish or the object of someone's fetish. But at the same time, there's also these dehumanizing possibilities as well. So it's not so easy to critique or support these concepts, but rather just kind of identify them and decide how you feel about it in the moment. The one concept that I really embrace from the book is the idea of being a freak. And I think that's because to me, being a freak is the ultimate way of rejecting like capitalism and patriarchy and all these other systems of oppression, because you're literally saying that I want to exist outside of these things. I reject these things. And you see artists like Peaches or Beth Ditto who just take up space in these radical ways that scream like, fuck you, look at my freakishness, you love it. And I want to channel that energy in my life. Like I want, I feel like I do. I feel like in many ways, I kind of do stand up and say like, fuck you, you love my fatness. Like, look at, I know you're looking at it. Let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think- but I do, again, I not to like over-intellectualize or like constantly go back and forth in this discussion, but I do think that our ability to do that and exercise that desire is very much dependent on the audience and their level of engagement and insight into these topics to see how far those conversations can realistically go. So if I'm speaking to like a room full of medical practitioners, for example, that audience isn't really invested in like relishing an objection than say, if I was going to like a fat burlesque show, those audiences and that community is very different. And I think that kind of places restrictions on how we might embrace or exhibit or exaggerate our freakishness right. in a way. I, I know she has a discussion around power dynamics and how they can be so fluid 
and depending on the room that you're entering. And, and that's, I think, exactly what you're speaking to. Uh, because, yeah, if you're, I mean, I, I gave a talk recently and I brought up a number of body liberation podcasts was really what I, the discussion was around podcasts. So I brought up, because that's the space I'm in, a number of body liberation podcasts. And, and I remember even as I was practicing, I was thinking, I wonder if this opens the door to them looking at my body and scrutinizing my body in a way that I'm maybe not comfortable with um, and classifying me in that freak show space. Uh, that was not the, the like, don't get me wrong. I, I, when I say invite, invite that, it doesn't mean I invited anybody to come up and make comments about my body and nobody did, that wasn't. But I did wonder if, because I was talking about it, if it all of a sudden brought up for other people this, you know, this, uh, well, now I'm gonna, kind of check you out. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the book talks a lot about staring and the gaze. And I think that that might be applicable to what you're talking about in the sense that when you are in a public facing position, by definition, people are staring at you. Right. And, and we can't control what they're thinking. But what I do love is that in moments where I'm being stared at, I try to embrace it because if someone is staring at me, it means that I could possibly be destabilizing the values or ideologies that they hold about fat people. Because when someone is staring at you, it means that you're blowing their mind and they're paying attention. They're not looking away. And I also think that it took me staring at other fat people doing the things that I wished I could be doing to give myself permission to just live in my body. So I try to really remember that when I find myself being stared at, you know, as I walk down the street or I eat at a restaurant or I swim in a public pool, that just as much as there's a chance that someone is staring at me and reaffirming their problematic beliefs about fat people, especially for other fat people who might be at a different place in their body journey, I invite those stares and I invite that interrogation because I think it allows us to reimagine the possibilities of a fat present or a fat future. I love that. That's a very beautiful reframe. Thank you for that. I, I, I probably needed to hear that today. So that was beautiful. Thank you. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, that's not to say it's easy. You know, and that's not to say that every time you're going to appreciate being stared at, especially because of that lack of control. But I do think that sometimes the only way to survive being stared at as fat people who carry our stigma in a very visible way is to sort of reimagine the possibilities that could come from it. She talks about resistance too. And I, I feel like by the way you've just reframed that for me makes me feel like do, going out and living my life, which I mean, okay, I, I, I have known this, but going out and living my life and doing the things that, that scare me because I want to do them is an act of resistance. Um, and, and she talked about resistance uh, very minimally, but she does talk about resistance. I was interested to know what your thoughts were around that, especially because uh, you have embraced the idea of, of activism. And so what mm -hmm. does resistance look like for you? Well, I love Charlotte Cooper's work on fat activism because it really opened my eyes to what resistance can look like. Because I think when we think of activism or resistance, we think of what she refers to as political process activism, where we might, you know, protest in front of government buildings or shopping malls, or we might sort of come together as a community to fight for protections under the law. But she also discusses things like micro fat activism or ambiguous fat activism, which is much more nuanced 
And I think in many ways, those forms of resistance are just really beautiful because this resistance could look like simply refusing to do something or so like refusing to hate yourself or refusing to engage in diet talk with like friends and family, but it could also look like prioritizing comfort and pleasure for fat bodies, such as, you know, ensuring that your home has comfy seats for larger bodies. I remember when I read that part of her book, a part of Charlotte Cooper's book, Radical Fat Activism, I remember reading that and realizing that I had never thought about my comfort when I chose furniture from my own house. It had never crossed my mind that I deserve to be as comfortable as possible. And I think that shows how deeply rooted fat stigma is and how fat people will internalize it as well. So resistance can look like these big picture things and it can be these very micro level things. And I don't think we could compare one or the other in terms of how effective that is. I mean, I resist fat stigma in a range of ways. Of course, like my academic and professional work is like explicitly (laughs) resisting these things, but I also like really love being in fat community and creating fats only spaces. And I think that's my favorite form of resistance. Like my softball team, the heavy hitters is an explicitly fats only team. And I think it's just such a beautiful and wonderful way of creating space to like truly be in your body. I also like fill my home with fat positive art and literature. I refuse to engage in diet culture with like literally anyone and I'm not perfect, but I'm trying really hard to sort of walk the walk and not just talk the talk. And part of walking the walk is seeing how can I embody resistance in these everyday situations and not just in these public facing platforms or whenever someone decides to hand me the mic, like instead it can also be these sort of little everyday things Or, you know, even just resisting the idea that, or the assumption that people are staring at you to judge you instead reframing that in your mind, I think is an active resistance. So yeah, it takes many different forms, but I think it kind of has to, if you want to survive in the world as a fat person. Yeah. I I loved Charlotte Cooper's book for that too. It made me rethink it kind of made me rethink, uh, just even all the things that I was doing, um, I, I was like, it's not enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough, you know? And I, and I think that that's a pretty, I'm a type A personality. So that's a pretty type A thing to think yeah. doing enough. Uh, and, and, uh, after reading her book, I sort of went even these, these soft, but, um, extremely valid things that we're doing for our own bodies, uh, are, are acts of resistance because if somebody else observes it, or even the fact that we're, we are prioritizing, like you said, our own comfort, nobody else is going to do that. You know, like the world is telling us not to do that. Mm-hmm. And so it, it does make it a pretty rebellious act to say, okay, I'm going to wear clothes that, that fit and that I like, uh, and I'm going to get rid of all the other ones, you know, mm-hmm. like, like that is an act of resistance or throwing away any diet culture tools that you have, you know, there's, there's lots of ways to do it. And I think, um, yeah, Charlotte Cooper's magical for that. Yeah. I think that too, these are excellent survival strategies for fat people, but I also really think that resisting fat stigma is not the responsibility of fat people. I, I really do believe that fat people, their only responsibility in that regard is to experience fat joy 
-hmm. And if you have the time or energy to also fight this like oppressive system, that's awesome because your lived experiences are the best place for us to derive the tools and information that we need to do that. However, I don't think the labor should be on fat people and the responsibility to resist these things should not be enforced on fat people. I think it's something we should be able to choose to take up if we have the spoons that day to do it. But otherwise the responsibility for resistance should be people who benefit from that system and who therefore do have more spoons in their pocket to resist these things. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm coming back to something that you said early, early in that, in that answer, fat joy. I want to talk more about fat joy. I, every time I, 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 think about my work in particular, a lot of these books are very heavy. And so we end up getting into these very difficult discussions around a lot of things that feel very heavy, but I want to inject more fat joy. What does fat joy feel like for you? Oh, that's such a loaded question. (laughs) I think think I'm still learning. To be honest, I think I'm still learning. I think that part of the not to have a negative response, but I think part of the consequence of growing up fat was I learned how to disassociate and not be present in my body that I very much move through the world in my mind, but not my body. And so I'm working on learning how to have embodied joy and what that feels like, but I don't know that I could absolutely 100% give you any kind of, you know, well-rounded definition of what that means. Cause it's something I'm still learning. That being said, I think that fat joy is two things. One, it can be joy that you derive from fatness itself. So I like love how my body feels when it moves through water. I love swimming. I always have. That brings me so much joy. I really love how strongly my thighs root myself to the ground when I'm playing softball because I play first base. It's a lot of pivoting and I just feel so strong. And then I also think that fat joy, and this is maybe a little more difficult is derived from also just having experiences that everyone should get to experience on, you know, the, the basis that we are all just human beings. And so if I think about what fat joy looks like, it looks like moments of joy that are shared with others and weren't related or impeded on in any way by my body or how people treat my body. And I think going using softball as another example, when my team is celebrating a win on the pitcher's mound, it's not really a mound on our fields, but you get what I mean. We are having a moment that has been extended to everyone else. At some point, it's that quintessential stereotypical image when you think of a team celebrating. And to me, that is also fat joy. It's this this idea or this opportunity to have an experience that you want to have and not even be thinking about your body in that moment. It's a rare thing. I think it's a very rare thing to have a moment of joy where you're not also, you know, operating that third eye and looking at yourself, but it does happen. And I think those are very sacred moments too. I think we just brought that back around full circle. That was wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what does fat joy mean to you? Like, how would you, I think it's a really like, personal concept too so how would you not to flip the scripts on you I know you're the interviewer but I'm curious like what does that mean for you I yeah and I I I agree with you it's it's a difficult it it is something I'm still learning as well um because I feel like 
I feel like I'm still getting used to this body that I'm living in. Like I, I, it was a number of years ago now, but I was very uh, trapped in diet culture to the point where I did a couple bodybuilding shows. Mm. And so I spent like probably 10 years of my life, very, very trapped. And so I'm still trying to, I have wrapped my head very much around the fact that I will never diet again. Uh, but trying to wrap my head around, this is the body I have now. And I need to be able to, um, to be okay with that is still, I still feel like I'm early in the process only because, you know, like the pendulum swung so far one way, it has to swing so far mm -hmm. the other way. Um, so for me, things like being able to find clothes that fit where I'm not, as a kid, my experiences in a change room were pretty awful. Um, and the fact that I can go into a place like Torrid for me, and I recognize that's a privileged position, but being able to walk in there and being able to find clothes that fit and being able to wear something that's a, a pretty color without having to worry about, you know, where it's slimming, um, that has given me joy, which is surprising because I always never was, even when I was quote unquote thin, uh, I never enjoyed the shopping experience. And now like I light up when I go, I don't go often, but when I do, I enjoy the fact that I'm there and it brings a smile to my face. So I, I recognize that as, as joy because I never had it in that situation before. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like I'm still, I think I'm still learning and I think I still have these very, uh, like for me, I, I, I worked out so much. I had very disordered relationship to exercise that now trying to find a comfortable balance between exercise and rest has brought me, it, I, I wouldn't say joy, but comfort for sure in the body I'm in, in the skin I'm in. And uh, that it's been hard, but being able to, you know, being able to find that, that, that rest, being able to find that ability to, to just go downstairs and dance instead of having a plan has been, has been really magical for me. And it's made me feel like, um, uh, more powerful, no, more, um, disconnected from diet culture, being able to see a little bit through the matrix, um, mm -hmm. for me. So I still feel like I have a long way to go, uh, to find, to find that. But I, I do, I love your insights. Cause like I said, we, the tendency is on this podcast, and I think a lot of body liberation podcasts, is to end up in these really deep trenches around all, all the things that you and I have just been talking about, discrimination, um, passing, good fatty, bad fatty archetypes, uh, you know, uh, all this kind of discussion. And it, I think it's important to be able to say, we do have moments. Yeah, no, <laughs> totally. <laughs> I, and I think you're touching on this really important shift that isn't I mean, I am under the, I come to, my view of the world is framed by my political opinion that we need to burn it all down and start again. However, mm -hmm. I do think that when we see these shifts in approach to these same sites, that that's how we can establish that joy. So if we approach movement and uh, active physical activity, not from the approach of discipline and punishment, but from the approach of joy, from the from joyful movement, as many would say, that is then 
not changing the original object, the site, but it's just changing our, our view of it. And I think I had a very similar experience to you in the sense that I really only ever engaged with physical activity as a punishment. And when I, when the paradigm shift happened in my brain, where I started seeing fatness as a valid form of existence, my relationship to movement changed as well, because I was coming at it as I want to do this. It's fun and it feels good. And I'm not expecting myself to change when I come out the other side. And instead, when you're not focused on what you want to look like, and that that is different than how you entered this space. Instead, what you're focusing on is how to make it joyful, how to make it fun. And, and I think that's this, a radical shift in our perspective and approach to anything, you know, and and I don't just refer to movement in the sense of, you know, like intense exercise that raises your heart rate. Like I have attended yoga classes where I, I have a lovely yoga instructor, Helen Kamisa, who is just like incredible 10 out of 10 would recommend as a human being and a yoga instructor. And she facilitates explicitly fat positive classes. And in her classes, she's always says that if you just want to show up and have a nap, you can do that. If you just want to lie down on your bolster and rest, that is a valid form of movement, not move, not movement. And I remember the first few classes, I was like, that is a wild idea. I will never just lie here and have a nap. And I will say that since then, I mean, I've been attending her classes for years, there have been some classes where I've been like, you know what, that's not going to feel good for me. I'm just going to like stretch out on my bolster and like meditate for a sec. And I leave feeling like I still accomplished something and I leave feeling so good. And I think just giving ourselves permission to decide what something looks for us and then enjoy it is like, so it sounds so simple, but it's so radical. It's so radical. It is because even if like, even when I was in the throes of diet culture, I would have spewed off to you. Oh, well, I get so many benefits from doing this. It's, you know, it's just good for, it's good for my mentality and I'm so much better at work and it's stress release and, and I get to lose weight. You know what I mean? Like, that's how I would have worded the whole thing. I would have put it into this context. That's very acceptable when the reality is, is my behavior was extremely disordered to the point of eating disorder. And it's just like, it wasn't healthy. It wasn't healthy. And looking back on it now, I go, how could you, you were playing, you were acting, you were acting, mm-hmm. you weren't being real with yourself because the reality was, is you were spending every waking moment that you weren't at work exercising and that's not good for anyone. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But we're, to- I think it feels good because we're told that that is good behavior. Oh, and then when, and then when you find fat community and you find leaders in fat community who say lying down is a good behavior or um, standing in the shallow end of the pool is a good behavior or sitting on your couch and knitting is a good behavior. It, it takes time, but it eventually, you know, reworks the pathways in our brains in terms of what we think is good and bad and therefore how we emotionally and effectively respond to these behaviors. Because I think for a lot of people, you know, you feel guilty or shameful when you're not when you spend a Saturday binge watching the Kardashians instead of, you know, hiking or climbing the gross grind. And if you work on just saying to yourself that this is what I want to do and that is good inherently because it is what I want, it is good. 
it, it does change your relationship to a lot of things, but especially the relationship you have with your body. Even, even giving yourself that permission to connect to your body. Like I know for me, for the first little while, when I first found all of this, I was very, oh, I, I laugh at myself now. I so laugh at myself. But one of the things that I would do is I would still have my workout plan and I would go to the gym and I would still do what I said I was going to do. But I try, I would do this thing where I was like, okay, I'm going to try to connect to myself. So if I did this next set and I didn't feel good, I would stop. And I, and I would do that. Um, and that was kind of my first baby step into this whole idea of it's okay to stop. Yeah. Like just having that permission to mm-hmm. not, especially if you've been in it a really long time to just to, to stop that there's just as much validity in stopping as there is in pushing through, even though that is not the message that we get from everybody else. Well, and I wonder if that's sort of like what the epitome of fat joy is, if we're going to try to define it. Because I think that in order to survive, many of us learn to disassociate or to feel happiness, but not in an embodied way. And I wonder then if we can define like the ultimate form of fat joy as one in which you feel good about something and you can also locate that goodness within your actual physical body. Because I think diet culture really, really uh, the ultimate goal is to disengage you. Mm -hmm. Because if they can do that, and pump you full of this idea that, you know, in order to be healthy, you have to be thin. If they can disengage you from your body so that they can try to mold you in that way, the opposite of that is being able to connect and being able to respond to the connection you have. And that's really hard. Mm-hmm. And I think it takes a lot of time. I don't think this is something that you can just wake up one day and choose. I think it's an act of choice over and over again until it just becomes a natural a natural thing. I totally agree. Cause we can sit here all day you and <laughs> talking theory and we can, I, I honestly believe I could probably talk to you all day about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is bringing it into our own lives is, is a totally different animal and nobody has to feel bad about that. I think sometimes I talk to some people who are just like, well, I haven't gotten that far yet or, you know, whatever. And that's okay. Like mm-hmm. totally okay. And depending on how long you were involved with diet culture, how much you absorbed that message, it could take a very long time. I'm fully expecting with the story that I have with my background, I'm fully expecting it to take many, many years yet. Mm-hmm. And it might be a yeah. lifelong, a lifelong journey, yeah. you know? Exactly. And, and it's okay. Beautiful. Like, isn't that beautiful? Like yeah. you are in this body. You are not just a mind, you know, you are not just whatever your beliefs are spiritually. You're not just that you are a body mm-hmm. and it's beautiful that you get to spend the rest of your life with that body and finding out about that body. Like that's such a joy. Like that is a joy. That is an amazing part of the human experience. And finding pleasure in fatness itself, like literal body fat is I think such a radical, radical act yes. because so many of us as fat people are expected to live these very lonely lives when you hate yourself or when you think your body is trying to kill you or when you think your body is bad and everyone else thinks your body is bad that is an awful 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 way to live your life and so to like completely flip the script is such a radical act of resistance um but it takes time yes it does and 
And you know what, if, if there's any listeners that are listening to this, uh, find community, Mm -hmm. talk to about this, find other people who don't look at your fat body with scorn. And it doesn't mean that your friends are bad or your, you know, your current community is bad, but I will say that my life radically changed for the better when I stopped letting myself be the only fat person in the room. Yes. 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 It really does change your life. It does. It does. It does. It's it, it just, yes, it does. Um, okay. All right. (laughs) So I am going to ask you the question I ask all my guests, which is, let's say somebody has read this book. Let's say they have an inclination toward body liberation. What would you maybe suggest that they read next? So the suggestion that I have is a bit more radical in its approach. So I think for maybe a newbie to body liberation and all of these conversations, it might feel overwhelming, but I would encourage you to still stick with it. And so that book is Eli Clare's Exile and Pride, which many of the concepts that this author talks about are sort of explored in more depth in this book, especially uh, staring and the meaning behind gazing or staring at non-normative bodies. And Claire does a really good job of exploring sort of the histories of staring. Uh, They discuss in particular the freak show or like the historical sideshow. And this is really compelling because it definitely troubles this narrative that we are all just subjected to gazing without any kind of control. And instead, the book really acknowledges how we can use the stares of others to our advantage. And I think it really like thickens this concept in a way that builds off of this book's introduction to it. To be sneaky, if a friend did want to read more body stories that explicitly centered fat people, I would recommend a second book, Thickening Fat, which is an academic anthology that really truly takes an intersectional approach to discussing various fat experiences within the context of particular social issues. Right, right. Uh, I'd add the anthology that you were in big to that list. Yes, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, it's not, it's not you were saying that's an academic approach. This one's uh, not quite as academic, but yes, lots of stories, lots of body stories. Yeah. And, and a lot of them really blur the boundaries between, you know, fat joy and fat shame in our experiences, because I do think they're very messy experiences. My chapter is about this whole idea of eugenics and whether or not if I could have been changed in utero, if I should, could, would still choose to be fat. And I think, you know, it, you'll have to read the book to see what conclusion I come to, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a nice introduction to starting to have these conversations in a way that is inviting and not threatening, but still very, uh, complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Okay. Well, where can my listeners find you? Uh, if folks want to connect with me, they can find me on my website, which is laylacameron.com. I also run a fat positive letterpress company called Stay Fat Design Co. So you can find that at stayfat.co. Um, and a podcast project actually that I've been working on will be released later in July in partnership with Tell a Story Hive. It's called Fat and YVR, and it explores all the different ways that fat people are making Vancouver a little more fat friendly. So definitely keep an eye or an ear out for that as well. Okay, there will be links to all of that in the show notes below. So all you'll have to do is scroll down and click. I want to thank you again, Layla, for being on Fat Girl Book Club. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. This was a pleasure. This was a moment of fat joy. 
So good, right? So good. I I don't know. I felt Layla was extremely easy to talk to. So I felt like this was a very, this was such an interesting conversation in that, um, you know, a lot of times I edit myself out because I feel like you should get an opportunity to hear the guest talk about their life and their story and their reaction to what they are reading. But because Layla and I just seemed to have this back and forth conversation that really made sense and that I, I really felt heard when, when her and I were chatting. And I hope, I hope I was able to give her that space too. Uh, it just, it was so empowering and I loved it so much. Uh, I hope you really, the other thing I really hope that you enjoyed here is this two episode discussion around this book, because this book really does give you such a good framework for looking at how we begin to construct our own body stories, how we begin to see ourselves can sometimes very much be based on the way other people look at us and the way we get treated because of how we look. And this book provides us with a framework to be able to have that discussion that I think is really valuable. So, uh, I really, really hope that you will look up this book. I'm definitely putting a link to it in the show notes. And I hope that you will check out Layla Cameron and everything she's doing, because honestly, I think she's brilliant. Just, just wickedly brilliant. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super glad you're here. Thank you for letting me vent a little bit at the beginning of this episode. And uh, I really hope that you guys are all having a great day, whatever day it is you're listening here. Keep reading, everyone. <laughs>